from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy playing host this week while Joel McKellar takes a few days off. On this week's edition, transport, steel, and the economics of climate change. Meet Alexa Dembeck, DuPont's Chief Technology and Sustainability Officer. Plus, why everyone you know is talking about regenerative agriculture. All this and more this week on a pun-free Green Biz 350. It's October 4th, 2019. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me from the Green Biz headquarters in downtown Oakland, California, is Associate Editor Holly Seekin. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Heather. How's your week been, Holly? My week's been pretty good. Apologies for the slightly scratchy voice. I uh, had some allergy issues earlier this week, but my week's been pretty packed. I ended up at uh, the Regenerative Food Systems Investment Forum for the past two days, which was also in downtown Oakland at the Marriott. Um, And I was able to meet a lot of investors, uh, startups, farmers even. Really? Okay, tell me about the farmers. I'm curious. Yeah. A lot of the farmers were there in attendance to kind of talk about how they had transitioned to regenerative themselves. So it was kind of preaching to the choir, but it's always incredibly important to keep the farmer's perspective when talking about food systems and food issues because those are the people that are producing and growing the food that feeds the rest of us, no matter how disconnected, you know, the average consumer is from that that growth. So farmers were there to talk about how they had managed to wean off of conventional practices, you know, which include a lot more monocropping, which is one crop, um, using a lot of fertilizers, um, using a lot of pesticides. Uh, those kind of practices are generally in, uh, in regenerative agriculture discouraged And the number one most important thing uh, that people talked about and everyone was kind of focused on was soil health. How how do we make sure that the soil that farmers are growing their food out of, that the food that people are eating from, how do we make sure that it's healthy? And that was the kind of the question on everyone's mind. Right. So this is about investors, right? So the um, one of the things I wonder about how the farmers actually find the money to to do that i mean that stuff takes a while right it's just like it's kind of like the organic movement right you have it takes three years i think um to get your land you know quote organic end quote or your products so was that something that they, they were concerned about or you know what what did they how did they manage to make those investments that is something that everyone is concerned about yeah there were actually a lot of comparisons uh people talked about the organic movement and how that was going when they talked about regenerative because regenerative is such a small portion of organic, which is already only 1% of land use in the United States is currently organic. And you're right, that is because it's an expensive transition. Farmers are barely making 
any profits. And so how do you ask a farmer to invest the money that they're using to pay for their family uh, to live back into a $350,000 piece of equipment that would, you know, help them actually get off of these, uh, these chemicals. But the way that investors can get involved is that there are a lot of impact currently it's mostly impact investing that's trying to connect with farmers and trying to offer them money and to make the transition. It is a bit of a tricky system because, you know, investors want returns in traditionally five to seven years. And that's about the amount of time it takes to transition a piece of land. So also on people's mind was kind of talking about how to rethink some of these financial mechanisms. Yeah, so that's a that's definitely the topic for the ages, right? And we actually, it's interesting because a couple of the stories we're about to talk about are deeply into this topic. So you know what? Why don't we do that? Why don't we get on to the week in review? So we're going to start with a story by our Verge Carbon conference lead. It's Carbon Tech, the trillion dollar circular market opportunity. I love, what I love about this story is that um, it sort of talks about the missing piece of carbon removal, right? There's um, this sort of push to get more involved with taking carbon out of the air and all of these carbon capture mechanisms that we're kind of piloting and dreaming about and so forth on the technology side. The big missing link over there is what to do with the the, the carbon that you've, you've collected. Like, where does it go? If it, what value lies in it? So this this particular piece does a great job of talking about a couple of really interesting examples. Starting with something sort of as mundane as soap. Um, it's just a, I didn't even think about it, but it's this. Uh, soap that that he just bought and it's got carbon basically carbon in it so it's like um, the charcoal type soap includes a salt made from carbon dioxide captured from heating systems the carbon's pulled into the air basically embedded in the salt and when the soap washes away it's still locked in the salt so it's like becomes inert the company is called clean o2 very fortuitous name um, out of canada which is interesting there's actually a lot of carbon related companies out of Canada, which I find fascinating. Um, and then there's an, another example that he provides about uh, one that's sort of taking carbon and turning it to fuel. But I just, I love thinking about this because that is part of the, the you know, the missing piece is just how you turn this into a, a business opportunity, if you will. Um, what struck you about this, Holly? I'm just curious what your take was on this story. I thought that the story was really interesting. And I thought that it dived pretty deep into it specifics about kind of the topic that we talk about a lot, which is the circular economy. Um, The circular economy is still pretty conceptual. We have a lot of pilot projects that are, you know, showing massive, massive potential, but at the same time, it's not, it's not quite as, as uh, established as we want it to be, right? So this, I think, is another proof point in, in the potential of the circular economy and the potential of what you can do with removing carbon out of the air. Um, I think that the consumer goods aspect is really important. I remember, did you write a story a couple years ago, Heather? 
Well, I've written several pieces on this topic. I mean, there are other areas, right? So we talk about this being used in beverages, right? For fizz, mm -hmm. if you will, effervescence. Um, we talk about um, it being embedded in concrete. Um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do with carbon and turning it into a feedstock, if you will, for for other things. And I think that that's one of the most, um, I don't know, I think you have it dead on though, this whole idea that it's a circular I mean, if, if you think about it, it's kind of the ultimate circular resource because this is something we need. Carbon is important for life. We need it. It's not a bad thing. It's just in excess. Everything in excess is bad, right? <laughs> Even too much booze, right? But it's just, it's, um, I think, I, like I said, I think you're dead on. It is the ultimate circular resource. It should be cycled. It, it should be just cycled and, and, and thought about in a different way. And I think that was one, one of the things that really struck me from his story. Yeah, it's that's kind of the thing, right? Is that carbon's in the wrong place. Let's put it in the right place and let's let companies sell it to consumers in ways that'll help the environment, help the help jobs, returns to investors. Hey, it's all a win-win. <laughs> so, so curious, uh, you do a thank you so much, Holly. You are, for those of you who don't know Ms. Seekin, she spends a lot of time running our uh, editorial operation as, as a, essentially our managing editor um, and did a lot of editing of Climate Week stories last week. Thank you for keeping us on target and on track. Um, so I'm curious, like, of the stories you saw come through this week, anything strike you in particular? Well, this week we had a big story about Danone and the multinational effort to restore biodiversity by someone I know very well. <laughs> Heather, do you want to talk about who you interviewed and how the story came together? <laughs> All right. Well, so this piece uh, came out of my interview with... Um, Emile Faber, the CEO and chairman of Danone, right? So the big food giant yogurt company based in France, um, biggest, world's biggest B Corp. So like a big company that's really spends a lot of time thinking about how they impact the world around them. And so this initiative, it's called the One Planet Business for Biodiversity. It is a new coalition coordinated by the World Business Council, for sustainable development, and it's focused on identifying, quote, systemic, meaningful, measurable solutions, end quote, that really support some of the things we were just talking about. So it's regenerative agriculture, product portfolios that move away from monoculture, restoration of, of grasslands, wetlands, and forests, and it's all in the cause of promoting biodiversity. So um, this coalition includes Danone, certainly, but there's a lot of other interesting companies. I mentioned some of them in the last podcast, but, you know, ranging from Mars to Nestle to Kellogg, Caring, um, Unilever, Yara, I mean, just all, it's, uh, again, and Google, which is, uh, I think, I don't know if I mentioned yet, but they do some satellites help this. But it's just a fascinating initiative, an important one, because frankly, the the sort of prior initiatives focused on biodiversity have really failed. The um, UN Food and Agricultural uh, Organization, they recently reported that of the 6,000 unique plant species that could be cultivated for food, just nine of them 
account for 66% of total crop production. So if you think about it, we have 6,000 different plant species available to be cultivated by uh, you know, farmers and smallholders and everyone for food. Just nine of them are making up crop production. So that's like a big problem. Um, and that's that, Which I know, nine? isn't it Would that be Do you know what, I'm sure it's, I'm, you know what, that's a good question. I'm sure it's like wheat and corn and... soy probably it's the things that get done by these big farms and and Mm -hmm. done in aggregate like huge fields and it's what's causing such a damage to the 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 ecosystem um Emile Faber mentioned like in France there's there's sections of France where they grow wheat right now and that they're thinking that about 15 years they won't be able to that the soil won't be able to support the 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 growth and that by the way the one fascinating one, one another fascinating thing about this monoculture is that the the seeds have been so hybridized and so engineered if you will that they can't adapt so they can't adapt to climate change in the way that seeds that haven't been fooled with um, can so that's the other you know thing that the reason that that companies like Danone are trying to look more at these seeds that are in the catalog if you will but that have not been germinated and used in in the right ways and in the right places so i just find this fascinating um they're they're trying to come up with like a framework of ideas and so forth by there's a couple different milestones they're going to talk a lot more about this in june of 2020 and then there's a big focus on biodiversity in china next october uh, the next big conference of the parties for the the convention on biological diversity so I don't know. I mean, this is one of those, I I, got to be honest, I'm kind of cynical about coalitions because there's a lot of them and you know this as well. I mean, like you see these wonderful coalitions come into place every week, but like which ones are going to count? Which ones (laughs) need to count? And this one feels like it really needs to count. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? It's like, wow. Yeah. It's, uh, I feel like every company is in at least five coalitions these days. Which, you know, obviously there's a value to partnership and collaboration. Uh, I do really hope that this one works. I know it'll be interesting, especially what you're saying about the seeds. The seed market is super controlled by monopolies these days. So I'm sure it'll involve some major systems changes. I don't want to ask you to speculate too much, but what do you think they might be able to come up with? Well, so you know what? That's a great question, and it makes me think of back to the um, back to your comments in the in the beginning about the investment in this and the new models and new business models. One of the things that Danone is doing, which I found really interesting, is they have a cost plus model for their farmers. So, in other words, they look at the investments that those farmers have made in regenerative agriculture or even renewables or anaerobic type, like things that they're doing in their farming operations to make it more sustainable. And they're taking those costs into account and then putting a profit on top of that. And that's how they negotiate their contracts. So they're negotiating long-term contracts based on, on the investments that these farmers are making. And that to me is an important model because that, to your point you made earlier, you know, these, these farmers, and they don't necessarily have the the money, you know, at their disposal. And, you know, ironically, many of some of them, you're like, this is probably not the case for family farms, but many farming operations are farming on land that isn't their own. So they're leasing it from someone. 
And so it's hard to get a loan against land that someone else owns, right? How do you do that? So it, it really will take some creativity. So I feel, I feel like that's a place where, especially the big food companies, really need to spend a lot of attention. They need to look at how they pay for what they're buying in order to get the supply chain to do that. I mean, it has to be economically feasible for these people. Agree. And I think it'll take efforts along the supply chain from suppliers, manufacturers, retail, consumers. So looking forward to seeing what happens to this one in 2020. So speaking of agriculture and sustainability and circularity, <laughs> like all of our to- favorite topics, um, the final piece I wanted to mention this week is uh, one that comes from a, a contributor of ours, Shane Downing. Um, the startup helping Smithfield turn manure into a circular resource. I could have put another word in the headline, but I kind of I didn't think that was very polite. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's about um, a company called Anuvia Plant Nutrients. They are um, a company that focuses on basically, um, you know, everyone knows manure is a great fertilizer, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a time old practice and, and, and so forth. But how do you take that resource, if you will, that, and, you know, turn it into a fertilizer more quickly um, and, and be able to benefit from it more quickly. And that's what this company is working on. So they've got, they've come up with a way of basically (laughs) turning, you know what, into fertilizer more quickly, um, which is important because they want to try to attack the, if you will, the nitrogen, right? The nitrogen synthetic, Mm. uh, fertilizer market. So that is, you know, that's one of those hidden, it's not hidden. I mean, it's incredibly profoundly damaging to the environment, the, uh, the way that these things, the, the, the nitrogen affects our ecosystems. Um, 120 million tons of it used in agriculture. Um, it's twice as much nitrogen that's applied to fields from organic sources. Um, so like animal manure, crop waste, and so forth. And, and the problem with nitrogen is, of course, it's, it's like the algal blooms, right? And the dead zones you hear about, and it's the runoff. Yeah. Um, so the dependence on these fertilizers has caused just problems with our, our, our water and, um, and, you know, fresh and ocean water. And so what these, this company is doing um, is it got smart about where it could find the resource. So it's, it's basically <laughs> gone to Smithfield and said, hey, you have a lot of what we need. <laughs> um, and we, plus you need fertilizers. So let's create a circular model. So I, I like it's just one of these... Um, creative, ingenious kind of business models that I love reading about. Yeah, it's super interesting. I wonder, so they're working with Smithfield, right? Yeah, so the big pork, um, hog waste, you know, so like that, and this is that, that's another problem, right? So you talk, they talk about these um, big manure pits, essentially that some of the larger Mm -hmm. farms have to create um, in order to to handle Mm -hmm. it. And so it could be a way of handling that sludge in a different way you know, benefits this yeah. company like Smithfield. Mm-hmm. So what's your take? Like, yeah. is this, uh, I mean, I'm just curious about what, um, you know, and you're, you're our primary person on food. Have you heard much, have you heard about other alternatives? Like, I, I feel like there are other dap- companies dabbling in this area, but, um, you know, any other approaches that you know about that we should be following? Yeah, I, I think that the, I'll use the general term, ag tech I know that that space is expanding so rapidly with 
different startups and lots of investment. So I think that this is definitely a really interesting startup, interesting model. Uh, and I know that there's a lot of different uh, startups right now that are trying to focus on this improving soil health and by doing it with um, with what, what we can't say. <laughs> um, but I know a lot are doing it with like microbes also. I know that there's a lot more focus on, on measurement um, is a big thing that people are trying to do. There's also robotics to try to spread the fertilizer, the new fertilizer, uh, as as immigration has policies have changed uh, workforces of farms. Um, it's it's a really interesting time, I think, for ag tech, and I think that this company represents an innovation that is definitely profound. Uh, I think that we will, I'm sure, see, hopefully, that lots of agriculture takes up some of these, some of these new techniques and uh, things that will allow them to cut emissions, cut costs, and uh, be more sustainable. One of my conversations during Climate Week was with Ned Harvey, the managing director of the industry program for Rocky Mountain Institute. And we chat a little bit about what he's focused on, um, as well as where he thinks you can help, you listeners out there in Greenbiz land. Uh, Ned, welcome to Greenbiz 350. Thanks, Heather. Glad to be here. Happy to talk to you. So first of all, I need to ask you, what does the industry program focus on at RMI? What, what are we talking about? What sorts of industries? So uh, I work with what we call the hard to abate or energy intensive industries. Those are the industries that basically find the materials that we use every day, move them throughout the global economy and deliver them to your doorstep. So shipping, trucking, aviation, steel, cement, aluminum, chemicals, all that, uh, all that body of our global economy, which accounts for about 40% of all energy use and about 30% of global emissions. So why is, are these sectors not doing things now? Is it too technically hard? It, what, what's, the, what's the reason for their pace of progress to be a little slower than, than other places? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, they're almost all, or they all are, very capital intensive. So it's quite difficult for uh, the CEO or the board of a big company to start thinking about changing out its assets to be low carbon. Uh, secondly, they quite often are, they're all very competitive. And if they do things that make their products more expensive, they're likely to lose business. Or uh, if the countries they operate in are pass uh, rules and regulations that make them more expensive, then the, the work tends to shift to other, other countries. Um, the, these are industries that are global in nature. They cross boundaries. It's very difficult to find a uniform global policy framework that works for them. So it's really up to the companies and the industries they're in to set a vision and to move forward. We'll talk more about the companies in a moment, but you mentioned international jurisdiction. So that means what? That means each country has to kind of buy into an international goal. I mean, is that why it's so hard? Well, yes. I mean, in, in shipping and in aviation, there are bodies, the IMO for shipping and ICAO for aviation, where they do try to set a global standard. But those 
bodies are beholden to the countries that, that make them up. And, and there's a lot of countries in the developing world or uh, that feel like too onerous a set of rules will, will um, disadvantage them. Also, if, if say, Europe um, adopts some very aggressive um, policies on aviation, then people from, from Asia will fly through Dubai or fly direct to the United States, wherever they're going, and just not land in, in Europe, which is not what anybody wants. And, so, um, and then for all the rest of the industries, there's no body like that. So countries, are, is there any country that's stepping up on this challenge? Well, uh, definitely the Nordics. You look at what Sweden is doing. They've established industrial pathways for several of their industries. Uh, in steel in particular, they're very much out ahead of the rest of the world in time to decarbonize steel. Um, I, I also think Australia is at a very interesting point. Uh, they don't get necessarily a lot of credit for, their, for what they're doing, but they have almost the highest penetration renewables in the world. They are actively trying to figure out how to add more renewables and make their grid much more flexible. And they also, as the source of resources for the global economy, they're thinking really, innovative, really differently about how they can continue to be uh, a really important player in the industry. And that might actually be, uh, instead of exporting a lot of raw, very inexpensive commodities, uh, moving up the value chain and exporting m- more finished goods. What do you see as the appropriate or the possible low-carbon pathways? You know, what technologies are we talking about here? Well, you know, I'll generalize. I think the pathways are relatively simple but difficult to execute. So first off, all these industries need to be as efficient as possible. They need to be pushing to be as efficient as possible. They need to look to electrify as much as they can with green electricity. Electricity is just an easy easier way to change some of these energies, then they need to start adopting and looking at fuel switching. So whatever fuels they use, whether it's coal or oil, how do we find new lower carbon alternates? Uh, And they need to start developing those technologies today so they're available in the next decade so that they can then start adopting them between now and 2050. I think the companies need to collaborate on these. No one company can do it themselves, so they need to figure out how to work together. And in, in the case of something like hydrogen, you need, I think we need to be seeing the shipping industry working with the steel industry, working with the cement industry or whatever, across industries to drive some of these changes. We hear a lot about liquid natural gas. Um, I'm curious as to whether that seems a viable or is that maybe a short-term, interim step? It's a very complicated question and one I spend a lot of time on. Uh, LNG is um, obviously a product we can use today, and it's a product that's pretty ubiquitous, and it's growing. The production of gas is growing. So it's going to be very difficult for us not to look at LNG, at least as a transition fuel. Uh, The challenge with LNG, one, is that gas in general doesn't compete anymore very well with renewables. Renewable portfolios are increasingly cheap. And so... How competitive will gas be as the world builds out its electricity system is, is um, a big question. And our position is it's going to be increasingly uncompetitive. Then the second big issue is, is that methane emissions from the oil and gas industry, including LNG, um, are uh, an existential threat to that industry because uh, methane is such a much stronger climate forcing gas. And uh, the amount of emissions that we could see in the next 20 years could actually swamp the entire climate. And we really have to focus on, if there is gas sold, that it's low emissions gas. You mentioned the need for collaboration between maybe sector leaders or or at least progressive companies. Do you see any company out in these industries that you're watching as being progressive or as as at least trying to lead the way or, or spur others? 
So I think on the uh, technology development side, we see some very interesting things happen in aluminum and steel. Uh, in Sweden, um, there's a technology called Hybrid, uh, and the mining company, which I'm blanking on the name of right now, that supplies them, and SSA, the big steel company in, in Sweden, are all working together to develop this technology uh, as a part of Sweden's roadmap. Um, I think the other place we're seeing innovation is on the part of some of the biggest com consumer-facing companies like Netflix and Apple, where they are making very clear signals that we will not accept anything but a low-carbon future. They're setting very clear long-term goals with shorter-term objectives to meet those. And I feel that that demand-side pressure is, is what is ultimately going to drive change in these hard-to-evade industries. It's just not going to be possible to sell steel uh, 10 years from now if it's not low-carbon steel. In fact, we're working very hard on something called zero emissions gas. If you're going to sell gas or if you're going to buy gas, you should be specking zero emissions gas or very low emissions gas. Uh, and I think that dynamic is going to roll out quickly across all these industries. So at Climate Week, we did see some positive, progressive sorts of thinking on this. So could you could you give us an example? I, I did. There's some industry collaborations that are coming to bear potentially that could help here. Could you mention a couple of those? Sure, there are. In fact, I can't even keep track of how many coalition type announcements we're making, so I don't even try. Uh, we ourselves are working in a couple. We've long worked with the Global Maritime Forum, which is a set of leading companies in the maritime industry that uh, basically set the uh, objective for the uh, International um, Maritime Organization m much more um, with much more ambition than it originally had. We're standing up a similar organization with the World Economic Forum and a company called Systemic, uh, based out of London, to do a similar thing for aviation, to try to, to bring together those stakeholders, uh, including airlines and airports and uh, airframe manufacturers uh, and customers, to try to identify a higher ambition goal and a a pathway that'll build on the good work that, that ICAO has done with, with uh, Corsia, which is our current program, but will uh, allow us to achieve a much higher ambition in air travel. One last question for you. Call to action from a customer and for these companies that are, that are playing a role in these industries. Uh, I think it's twofold. I think uh, I would frame this all, and there's no room in the world for carbon-intensive products in 2050. I think everybody's just got to come to work with that. If you're a producer of steel, cement, plastics, or whatever, you have to have a pathway to zero carbon. But more importantly, if you're a customer of any of those products, which we all are, I think we all have to stand up and recognize we have to play a part in this. We have to demand zero carbon products. We also going to recognize we're going to have to pay for that. And in some cases, it'll be de minimis. You won't have to pay much more for your jeans to get them shipped across the world in zero-carbon ships. You probably will have to pay more for a plane ticket. And uh, it's really important, I think, that we accept that responsibility and that we all do our part to demand that our tickets come with a zero-carbon product or that we offset them ourselves, which is the option we all have today. Ned, thanks for joining us on GreenBiz 350. Thank you very much, Heather. Anytime. Another one of my meetings at Climate Week was with Alexa Dembeck. She is a Senior Vice President and Chief Technology and Sustainability Officer for DuPont. When we chatted, it was way too loud to record her, so I convinced her to join me again on a telephone call. So uh, I'd love to welcome Alexa from her office in what I, I love this name, Experimental Station down in Delaware. Alexa, welcome to Green Biz 350. 
Heather, it's great to talk to you again after Climate Week. And I am at the Experimental Station, and it is a cool place to be. <laughs> it's got a great name, for sure. So, um, you know, there are very few people who haven't heard the DuPont name, but they might not know um, all of the recent twists and turns from a structural standpoint. So why don't you start um, by helping us understand the, the mission of the, quote, new DuPont, what you're focused on really primarily. So Heather, as a brand new company from June 3rd, we're really excited to think of ourselves as a 217-year-old startup. What's exciting about that is we have a really rich legacy of using science and innovation and our core values to make a big difference in the world. What we're doing, though, as an entrepreneurial new company is delivering on the purpose. And our purpose aligns perfectly with the conversation we had in New York empowering the world with the essential innovations to thrive. And with that, we can make big progress, progress for our customers, progress for our shareholders, progress for society on big challenges that are aligned with what's important in the world today. And we know the world is really fast-moving. And in the fast-moving world, our customers need solutions faster. Technology is a big part of helping to drive change. So we're excited for the new company. We're making a difference, and uh, again, this entrepreneurial spirit coupled with a rich heritage and legacy is going to be an exciting place to be. So I am really intrigued by your title. (laughs) So tell me about the decision to include both technology and sustainability in your responsibilities. What do you oversee, and how is sustainability embedded into your research and development decisions? Um, At DuPont, we created this new role of Chief Technology and Sustainability Officer. We understand that the catalyst for innovation really is sustainability. It's where we're pointing our science and technology to make a big difference for customers and for society. So from my point of view, these are really well-linked, and they're critical to delivering on the mission of the company. Um, In the past... Sustainability, um, the progress in sustainability, it started with environmental footprint. But now it is much more leading edge and modern. And for DuPont, this is where science and entrepreneurism and technology will really make a difference on sustainability. Of course, in addition to sustainable operations and our practices on renewable energy and water usage. By far the biggest contribution that DuPont can make to the world on sustainability It comes from innovation. The world's changing quickly, and there are a lot of pressing problems. And we know this is where we can make a contribution, not only for our shareholders, but for our customers and for society in general. So I want to poke into that. So when you when you say where you can make a contribution, you know, contribution through innovation, is there an example that you can give me? Yes, we have a lot of examples, Um, and we have aligned our innovation portfolio with the sustainable development goals, which you know from Climate Week, that's the real focus that everyone's after. So within the 17 goals, we can explicitly align with seven SDGs from just an innovation perspective. We align with more beyond innovation, but I'll give you specific examples. One of them that we're excited about is water, so SDG number six. Um, And our ability to drive ultrafiltration drive reverse osmosis filtration. What this does from a science perspective is bring credibility to water. 
water stewardship, water safety, and performance um, for all elements of society. We actually announced earlier this week, on day one of Climate Week, we announced uh, the acquisition of a company in this space, which, again, we're really excited about increasing our ability to contribute. We've got many other examples with either Climate Action, number 13, or with Food, number 2. And the real theme and the way that we align is making sure that our science and our technology and the innovation we deliver meets a need that's outlined by SDGs and by society. So I'm going to bite on number 13, right? Because I think that probably fits a little bit with some of your own operational goals, like climate action. So maybe could you link the two? Is that, is that what you mean like by climate action? Or is it, is it beyond just your own operations? Absolutely beyond our operations. So you would expect DuPont's been involved in sustainability for more than 25 years. We were one of the first in the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. We were a founding member. So we've been tackling climate action from an environmental footprint in our own facilities for over two decades. What we're driving here in climate action is how can our innovation, how can the transition of metal in cars to plastic to lightweight, dry fuel efficiency, and therefore reduce CO2 reduction. How can those type of innovations make a difference? We know the leading edge in innovation for the automotive industry is moving to electric vehicles, whether it's hybrid or fully electric. And there, the need for materials innovation, for system integration, for lightweighting, for a whole different realm of safety and performance, maybe even someday, Heather, autonomous driving. That's where the leading edge of technology continues to change, and we know it needs to happen in order to enable climate action number 13 to be successful. How do you measure the impact? Like what, what, how do you, I mean, it, it, that's a one, one of the things that people tell me it's very difficult to do, right? So you just sort of stay focused on that North Star, and I mean, do you try to put any specific forms of measurement around it, or is it just revenue? How, how, do you, how do you go back and say, yeah, we feel like we're moving fast enough, or, mm, you know, we need to do more here. How do you know? Well, there are a lot of measures that we continue to track, and we're, we're close to announcing our brand new goals for the new company. We just launched our roadmap, and um, as part of it, we outline not only our strategy, but what specifically we'll be announcing in a couple of weeks and then we'll be able to track. Um, but from an innovation perspective, each of these innovations has a key lever that says, how are we contributing, for example, on number 13 in climate? How are we making a difference in CO2 reduction from the innovations that we've delivered? Um, and we compare it to the incumbent or to, um, to other alternatives. So I think the measurement is important, and it'll be different for each one of the goal areas. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great answer because it doesn't have to be a number. It could just be, hey, this is what happened. And I think that's important to, to realize as well. Let's thank you for that insight. I appreciate it. So um, just to kind of wrap, first of all, I'm going to call you on those goals. We'll, we'll definitely have to, to make another uh, appointment to talk. Uh, oh, that'll be soon. great. Yeah. So, um, of you know, yeah, we can't wait. <laughs> so just to close off this chat, um, what advice would you give to other chief technology officers about how to include sustainability or, you know, more specifically, the sustainable development goals in their innovation pipeline? 
you know, first of all, there couldn't be a better time to be a chief technology officer and being in, in order to be bold and to really make a difference in the world by incorporating science with sustainability. And I think that's really the big message today for me, Heather, is science contributes in important ways to delivering on our sustainability goals as a society, as a planet, as customers, whatever dimension we'd like. This really is about the leading edge of technology, of entrepreneurship, of driving collaborations, whether it's collaborations within the companies that we serve or across governments with policymakers. That powerful connection that's founded on how we solve these problems for a CTO that relies on science and technology. So I think the future is in front of us. There's been a tremendous amount of progress. I'm really inspired to be a chief technology officer that lives in the sustainability world to make a difference. So I'm, I'm sure that um, all my colleagues around the world, we're all turning our attention to think more powerfully in this direction. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organizations, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. And while you're on the site, look for a link to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Greenbiz events. You'll also want to make sure you're subscribed to our portfolio of weekly newsletters, including thematic updates on our core coverage areas, including the circular economy, energy, transportation, and the sustainability profession. And of course, I'd be remiss not to make a special plug for Verge Weekly, edited on alternate weeks by yours truly. And a huge thanks to Holly for joining me this week as co-host. Joel McHower and I will be back in just seven short days. Until next time, from all of us here at Beamdiz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Thanks for listening.